Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Maya May, comedian and host of LPTV's We're Speaking, which will make its return this fall. Maya, thanks for coming today. Thanks for having me back, Reed. So gang, today we're going to do things a little differently. I wanted to do an episode where we take questions from y'all, the listeners, viewers, supporters, and overall members of the Lincoln Project team. We've taken these questions from social media, emails, town halls, and anytime you ask a question, you could see it on a show like this. And it's probably not going to be the last time we do this sort of thing. So Maya, let's go ahead and get into our first question. It comes from Tony Pertola on Facebook, and he asks, has the Lincoln Project ever considered adding a field component to their strategy? Well, I, I can tell you this, that we did a lot of stuff last year, and we're putting these things in place now to really build partnerships with folks who are good at those things. And, you know, we in and of ourselves, a bunch of middle-aged former Republican guys, I should say, were never field people, right? There's a very special talent that comes with being able to be dropped into a town you're not from and organizing people you don't know. And that's never really been one of our talents. But the good news is that there are so many groups out there, and I've been on the phone with probably two dozen of them in the last week, maybe two weeks, who do these things really well. And so, you know, if we're not experts at it, let's go find those folks that are. Yeah, I think community building is a big part of what we are expecting over the next year or so, because that level of engagement is what we're going to need to get through this. And that's not just from a political perspective, but almost as a, you know, humanity perspective. People are very confused and lost about how we're going to get out of this because it's like the whole feels so very deep. And I think engaging face to face is the thing that special sauce that gives people hope. Lisa and I talk a lot about this. I, prior to the pandemic, spent a lot of time touring colleges. And so I'm face to face with college students and I'm about to head out in a few weeks to Pennsylvania, Virginia, Missouri, quite a few states. And I'm really excited to kind of get the pulse of what the college students are feeling right now because they're going to be an important part of what's happening in 2022. So we got asked this question. We were in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, and we got asked a question about what we were doing with college kids. And this is one of those things where your perspective and our perspective are different, but both have some truth to them, which is people like, oh, college kids, college kids, college kids. And we look at it from a purely like, how often do they turn out perspective? And the answer is not very well, no matter who it is. And everybody's like, oh, well, they turned out for Obama. Okay. Well, that was 13 years ago. <laughs> One, <laughs> two, even then their turnout was higher because turnout was higher across the board, right? As a percentage of people who turned out, it wasn't that much different. People are like, oh, you need to get the youth vote. And I always like to say, listen, I'd love it. 
But if you're somewhere between 18 and 22, there's always something more important to do than voting. And there's always an excuse to not go do it. I don't know how to figure it out. I'm hungover. It's too nice outside. It's too cold outside. You know, whatever the answer might be. But you see it as a broader sense. And I think probably the more important sense, which is, as Whitney Houston likes to say, the children are our future. So as you have talked to kids and, you know, it might be a little bit different with the pandemic, what's your sense of their sort of general being, right? I mean, millennials, you know, younger generations, I think, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, the baby boomers and beyond, you know, we all sort of do what every older generation does. We look back and say they're so soft and they don't care and blah, 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 blah. But is that the sense you've gotten talking to the kids you see? Not at all, actually. I've seen a huge shift in the last couple of years. Um, They're incredibly engaged and also in the past year or so spending so much time with their families because most of them haven't been able to go back to campus, have got into the habit of engaging in these conversations with their parents, which I think in that sense, it's like we want to make sure that these college students are informed because just like how Matt Damon's daughter put the pressure on him to realize that he needs to take some things out of his language. College kids can do that same thing with their parents, where they can put the pressure on them to evolve and understand the importance of democracy. So I think it's almost like they could be a megaphone platform for us to grow. All right. So Maya, you've been talking about getting out to see the kids. You talked about a lot of them at home with their parents. So you mentioned you're going to be in Virginia and Pennsylvania and Missouri. What kind of schools are you going to? A lot of conservative schools, interestingly enough, but I'm going to be first in Pennsylvania and Westchester University, then heading back to California to Cal State up North Haywood. And I'm bouncing all around. I'm going to be in Rhode Island. It's always in these small towns where I have to like fly into a municipal airport or fly into a major airport and drive like two hours. I'm going to be at like Lander University in South Carolina, places like that. So comedy and politics have a lot in common, it sounds like. Oh, definitely. And well, (laughs) yeah, going to the middle of nowhere and talking to the people. But, you know, in my comedy, I dress race, class, gender, those sort of things. And so the students are always up for listening. I think that's what we've seemed to have forgotten as a culture is that they want to listen, they want to engage, they want to learn. That's what I see as being different about right now. Well, I hope so. And I hope they're ready to get to work you know, the balance of this year and next year, because we're certainly going to need them. All right, let's move on. Our next question comes from at Lisa Ann Wolf on Instagram. As eviction prevention measures are coming to a close, do you think evictions are going to harm the voters who now have to get a new address and ID? You know, this is a really good question. And, and Lisa Ann, thank you for asking it, because it's actually a lot bigger than just a voter ID question. Congress gaveled out uh, couple of weeks ago without addressing the eviction moratorium, Joe Biden put a 60-day hold on that and said nobody's going to be evicted for the next 60 days, which has some questionable sort of legal provenance, but no one seems to be pushing back against it for now. But this is something, Maya, that we talked about last year in the context of the pandemic and how everybody, especially, um, was going to be utilizing vote by mail more. It could be potentially dangerous to go to a polling place. You might be scared to go to the polling place, probably not surprisingly. But if you didn't have a place to go, where the heck were you going to receive your ballot? And so I think that this is something that is a bigger problem. 
obviously you need to have an address to be registered to vote. You know, let's hope that you have an address because otherwise it means you don't have a place to live. There are some like 11 million people who I think are under immediate threat of eviction. And so this really cuts across not only political, but socioeconomic lines. As you and I were talking before we started recording, there's something like $45 billion in unspent rental assistance funds across the country. So it's this sort of ugly soup of folks losing their homes, inability to participate in the electoral process. And then, of course, the bottom line of like, where are these folks going to go if they can't live where they're living? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And it really has me thinking about safety. We're still in a pandemic. And so not just health safety, but like emotional safety of feeling that one has a place to live. And so just that piece of it alone, I think, is going to continue to put people in a place of fear, which might actually end up backfiring because those very same people will realize who kept those measures in place and will hopefully activate those voters to get out and make a difference and to make sure that their voices are heard. On the flip side, I am very curious about the demographic breakdown of the people who are most affected by this, because I always hear the team talk about how it's about margins, right, and with elections. And so if this large amount of people, if they're displaced, how is that going to affect those margins? That's what I'm concerned about. And of course, it has this sort of cascading effect, which is the folks who are most affected probably most need to have their voices heard at the ballot box. If they can't participate, their voices aren't heard. And then, you know, what comes next for them? And, and, and I think, look, I think there's a broader issue here beyond our current remit. But, you know, there's a significant economic disparity in this country that will need to be addressed sooner than later. The average American family has something like $400 in savings if they have that. I think the number one cause of bankruptcy in the country is, you know, medical debt. And there are these things that have just been festering for years, if not decades, because it was just easier to push them under the rug or pretty powerful special interests didn't want any change. And so now I think we're seeing this long calcified system is starting to crack a little bit and, you know, no one is really sure what to do. The only thing they say is like, well, we can't do this and we can't do that because what if these things happen? And Maya, I have come to firmly believe that most of the bad things that have happened in human history have occurred because somebody said, well, we could do that. But if we do that, what if this happens? And you know what happens when you do everything you can to avoid the bad thing? The bad thing gets you anyway. That's just typically how it works out. And so I, I think that you know we do need some leadership in this country that can start to address some of these more fundamental issues. But I think until and unless we can secure democracy, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to get to those issues that I think are salient in many, many people's lives. Yeah. And I think the after effects as well, you know, of the health issues, when you mentioned the part about the medical bills, like I read a story about a woman who lost her home because her husband died of COVID and they couldn't afford the mortgage anymore. And so she ended up having to move out. And so there's, we're going to see after effects of that as well. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, if you have, let's take two of our favorite and absolutely legitimate punching bags lately, Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis. If tens of thousands of Texans and Floridians are ending up in ICU beds, which are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars a day when you finally get a bill, because these, I don't want to call them idiots because they know what they're doing, refuse to take the steps necessary to contain 
the Delta variant as they knew it was spreading. Who's on the hook? Is it the leader that knew better and didn't say anything? Is it the leader who knew better and actively said, we're not going to mask? And oh, by the way, like vaccines are unproven. You know, this is where leadership really does matter. If Republicans had been saying from the get go, get the vaccine, get the vaccine, get the vaccine, and nobody likes wearing a mask, but we got to do it now because you don't want to die. You don't want to get your kids sick. You don't want to lose your job because something shut down again. Because if something survived by the skin of its teeth last year, it's probably not going to get a second shot at being Lazarus in 2021. Like, who's at fault? And that's one of those things where if you're stuck in Houston in an ICU bed because you believed that after watching all this crap and hearing from your elected leaders, your conservative person, oh, I wasn't supposed to get the vaccine because, you know, who knows what it is. And now here I am. I get out. I've got a million dollar hospital bill. Are you ever going to be able to pay that off? The answer is probably no. And what does that do to the rest of your life and the rest of your family's life is this albatross of debt hangs over your head. So, I mean, all these things, and I'm just thinking about this as we go, all of these things are interconnected far more than I think we ever think about. Well, and this is the thing that down the line, this is we're going to see the after effects of this in a year or so, and people are going to be saddled with debt. And it's actually the timing of it is going to be right around 2022. All right, let's go to our next question from at fan of Walt on Twitter. Are we really using the 2020 census data as is for redistricting despite the irregularities in the collection and processing of the data? Has the data been reviewed and actually deemed as accurate? I do not work at the Department of Commerce, nor do I work at the Census Bureau, so I cannot speak to the review of that data. I would say, though, that the people that do work there probably take their jobs very, very seriously, regardless of whatever political pressure they were under during the Trump administration. And so, yes, we will be using that. In fact, I think any day now, the Census Bureau will be dropping that information into the states for the purposes of redistricting, for congressional and legislative redistricting, which will occur this fall, later than normal. And so from our perspective into these different races, a lot of them will be hard to say what we're going to do and where we're going to do it until we have a better idea of what some of these maps are going to look like. But I'll tell you this, regardless of what census data you're going to use in a place like Texas that's going to pick up two congressional districts or any really state that's controlled by a Republican governor, Republican legislature that you know doesn't have an independent redistricting commission, they will redraw the boundaries of these seats to give themselves you know, a bigger advantage in those delegations. As I have said before, Republicans really have understood the mechanics of all facets of politics better than Democrats have for decades and have really turned redistricting into a dark art. They really know how to do it well. The Supreme Court has repeatedly said that they're not going to get involved in individual states redistricting fights. I saw a story the other day that said that is likely to have a chilling effect on local federal courts who might otherwise hear about a totally gerrymandered district. And so I think that the result of all that, Maya, is that it's going to be Republicans probably net plus 10 or 12 before we even get to election day next year. And that puts us a little bit behind the eight ball as we start this process, but certainly far from anything's decided. It's really alarming. And you say it with a very calm voice that it will be potentially that far behind. And it's very alarming to me because when the census, when they were asking people to fill it out, I actually, we kept getting robocalls from the school district begging for people to complete 
the census. And so I think in places like California, in Texas, where you have a lot of families who may be concerned, especially during this past year, about either allowing somebody to come to their door those numbers have shifted and it's very nerve wracking because I also feel like as a lay person, like we don't really pay attention to redistricting. I think you could ask just about any person walking down the street in California and ask them if they understand the redistricting process. And I'm going to guarantee you, you're going to get a what? Redistricting of who? What? It's tied to the census. What? This is not something that people really pay attention to, at least on the Democrat side, as you pointed out, that we've never been good at the multifaceted approach to elections. But I can tell you the average person doesn't realize that this is a big danger. This is where you really have to understand that the Republican slash conservative effort in this country has been dedicated, well-resourced, focused, and patient for decades. Redistricting is just one part of that and that they understood for many, many years how they could write early computer models to draw these maps, even before the Supreme Court struck down the preclearance and all the other stuff in the Voting Rights Act, so that they could be just on the line of being over the line as far as, you know, packing Democrats into a district, packing, you know, communities of color into a district, but not be over it. It passed, you know, whatever the minimum smell test of garbage was, they managed to get there. And they see this because you see the Republicans understood, again, for a long, long time, that ultimately this stuff all comes down to who's going to be in charge. And so what have we seen Republicans do? And this is a good example. They redistrict both the congressional lines and the state legislative lines to favor Republicans. They go out of their way to elect local candidates on the Republican side then those candidates become state legislators or state senators. And then those people become statewide office holders. They become congressmen. They become senators. They become attorneys general, whatever the case might be. And before you know it, you have a robust bench in a lot of these red states that Democrats couldn't begin to crack even if they wanted to, even as some of these states, like a Texas is a good example, should be trending more purple because of the demographic changes in the state and because of the growth in the state. A lot of people coming from places like California and Oregon and Washington state, as Texas has had a massive influx of people because of a strong economy and a low tax base. But Republicans understood how to use the rules of the game to their advantage. And we see that now with these anti-voting bills. So when you put all this stuff together, it says you could have a dictatorship of the minority in a lot of these places, even though Republicans know they've lost the argument in the marketplace of ideas. They don't care anymore. It doesn't matter. They have the advantage of not giving a shit about anything other than winning. That's all they care about. And their wins will beget more wins, which will beget more restrictions, which will ensure that they win more and more and more. And so that's why we have to cut these things off at the pass now so that we can say, nope, you're not going to do this anymore. All these people we're talking about, whether or not it's those folks facing eviction, whether or not it's those young people, whether or not it's otherwise unregistered voters who need to participate, everybody's going to have to stand up here for the next two election cycles, at least for 2022 and 2024, get off the couch and you know take democracy back. I mean, we all seem to think of this as like the government and the system, like the system only exists because we have so far allowed it to exist as a compact that we made that says we're all going to live under this system. But that does not mean that we have to sit back and just say, okay, well, the system isn't working for me, or I don't like the way it is. And therefore, I guess that's just how it'll be. That's not how we operate. And that's not how we hope that 
tens of millions of voters next year will operate either. Yeah, I'm hoping that reforming the system, engaging with the system becomes a part of our civic duty and engagement, like on a day to day basis. I'd love to see people wake up in the morning and say, "Okay, how do I affect change at the local level? Because otherwise it looks dire. (laughs) I don't like dire. Well, and, you know, that's the thing. We don't need everybody to do that. We just need enough people to do that. It would be great if we had such a civically engaged society that that's what people did. And people do that in their own ways, right? They do it with their families. They do it with their schools. They do it with their individual communities. But it's those rare few who are willing to join a community organization or stand for office. And, you know, that's the beauty of a representative democracy is that they speak for a lot of us. The difference is right now is we got a whole lot of assholes who don't speak for anybody but themselves and we got to get them out of here. All right, let's go to another voting rights question. This one from at Dave Rain 83 on Twitter. Are federal appeals to the now-in-place state-level voting restrictions likely to be heard by the Supreme Court before the 2022 elections? The limitations seem like clear attempts to undermine the 15th Amendment. I don't know is the answer. As we mentioned, both in 2013, when I believe the Supreme Court struck down Article 3 of the Voting Rights Act, and then earlier this year, they struck down Article 2 of the Voting Rights Act, this conservative court has seemed to go out of its way to leave how voting works in the states to the states. Now, in the Constitution, it is enumerated that states can and should determine the nature of their elections. So that is a baseline. But obviously, in 1965, we realized that we had an issue in which southern states were systematically disenfranchising almost the entire African-American population, and we needed to do something about it. And that stood, I think, every president from Johnson, when he signed it through Obama, you know, reauthorized that, you know, Republicans and Democrats alike. No one didn't say we needed the Voting Rights Act. No one said we had come to this place in our society where we didn't need things like preclearance of new voting restrictions. And there was a reason those things were in place. And we see that, for example, in Florida in 2018, Floridians overwhelmingly passed a ballot measure that would re-enfranchise nonviolent felons. In response to that, Ron DeSantis and the Florida legislature passed what amounted to a poll tax, which says that's all well and good, but you don't get your voting rights back until you pay your fees, your fines, your court costs, and everything else. Well, it turns out that that led to something else, which is the Florida criminal justice system is so whacked out that a lot of folks who want to vote couldn't even figure out, A, how much they owed, and B, if they did, who they owed it to, Uh, which meant that a lot of people who otherwise would have had the opportunity to participate had to sit on the sidelines. I hope that that's the kind of thing that if the Supreme Court hadn't acted as it has in the last decade, that would have had to go before the DOJ, the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, and they would have said, "Uh uh-uh, nope, not going to happen. But this is why elections matter. I love this question. I've had this conversation with quite a few friends about why it matters so much, because when I think about voting rights and voting restrictions, And everyone's like, oh, well, you know, but everybody can vote. Like they just have to go through this process or these, what I like to call hoops, which they just call processes. And I think about it, it's like going to an all-you-can-eat buffet. You pay to get in and then you get there and you grab your plate and then there's signs everywhere that's like, oh, but you can only get salad between nine and 10 and you can only get the ambrosia between 6 p.m. and 7 p.m. And oh, wait, no, you need to grab another plate because you can't use this plate. You have to use this kind of bowl when you're spooning the pasta. 
And once in a while, there's a big goon standing in front of the buffet saying, do you really want to eat here? But I mean, I think that's the point. I mean, Maya, we as a nation are pretty piss poor in our voter participation to begin with. This isn't a new problem for us. The country tends to turn out in higher numbers during presidential cycles because there's so much attention dedicated to it and because we've placed the presidency up on this pedestal for you know most of the last hundred plus years. But you know, in most midterms, turnout's fifty percent, and you know it'll be higher in some places and lower in others. I mean, the last time I did a race in Los Angeles County, where you live, in the primary in two thousand fourteen, twelve and a half percent of registered voters showed up. Twelve and a half percent of registered voters in a county of eleven million people. And they're worried about putting restrictions on the buffet. Like it's crazy. Nobody's even going to the buffet, Reed. But this is the point is that the people that do go to the buffet, they want to increase that friction and say, is it really worth it? And as we were talking about here, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for someone to say, I'm so confused now. That's the other part too that we haven't really talked about. We should talk about more, which is not only does it make the process more difficult, it sows an inherent confusion into the system that people say, well, all right, now what do I have to do? And while people have all the information they need at their fingertips, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to use it. And so there will need to be, for the good guys and gals, a pretty significant voter education campaign just on, like, if you live in Georgia, here's how it's going to work. If you live in Florida, here's how it's going to work. And there'll need to be a concerted effort across everybody on the pro-democracy side to make sure that those things happen. And to your point about community, as we started with finding those leaders in those communities who are going to go around and say, Mrs. Johnson, you've been a regular voter for 48 years. Like, you're not going to stop now. I think the other part, too, is I was talking to a dear friend of ours in the veterans community. We want to go out and recruit thousands of veterans to serve as elections judges, because what we're afraid of is that you're going to have a bunch of these, quote, election observers, you know, who are going to come in, vast majority, maybe all of them being Republicans, who are going to try and, you know, either explicitly or implicitly intimidate somebody who might be in line. And my guess is, is that that moron is a lot less likely to cause trouble if he's going to have to deal with a former Marine, right? (laughs) Who's running the polling place. Um, Most elections judges tend to be older. They tend to be female. They take their jobs very seriously. They believe it's their service to their community. But, you know, if there's a big old Bubba in a Hawaiian shirt causing trouble, she's going to be looking for help. And a lot of places aren't going to let her have it. It's crazy to me that we're actually having this conversation in what should be a thriving democracy. Because even with this past election cycle, I was concerned about violence at the polls. Like I was nervous about it and happy to be able to do mail-in voting. And so with all of the rhetoric kind of amping up in this whole you know, we have to take back our country thing. I think it is going to intimidate a lot of people. And so I I think that effort with the veterans is an amazing idea. I love that. That would make me feel safe. I'd like them everywhere. I'd like them at the grocery store. Just in general, could we just have vets patrolling for the next year and a half or so? Right. The violence issue is very real. You know, a friend of mine is Egyptian. And on the afternoon of January 6th, he texted me and he said, are you okay? And I said, I don't think I am. And he said, we're so sorry for you because now violence has re-entered your politics. They're unfortunately used to it. We are not. This is not a normal thing for Americans to see. And my fear is that you're right. That opened the door to more of this stuff 
because we're going to see a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol on that day are going to be handed prison sentences. Most of them will be felons for life. But the people who organized that stuff, whether or not they were members of the Trump organization, Republican superstructure, members of Congress or the United States Senate, very well, you know, might get away with it. And there's that old trope now, I don't even know who said it, but, you know, a coup that goes unpunished is just a training exercise. Here we are in 2021 with every bit of information humanity's ever created at our fingertips. You know, we should be a post-industrial enlightened society. And, you know, we're as bad as people believing in mysticism in the 1500s. Like it's baffling. And when I say fascinating, I don't mean like in a good way. I mean, like, what the hell, right? Like, what the hell is going on? It's the fear of change is what I feel is driving a lot of this. It's like this demographic shift is going to happen no matter what. And it's like there are some people who are good at dealing with change and there are other people who are not good. Well, you know, what's really funny is that there's been this thing lately, this guy, J.D. Vance, who's running for U.S. Senate in Ohio, who started as a big anti-Trump guy in 2015, 2016, and is now bootlicker number one. And he started talking about, you know, these childless liberals, you know, who shouldn't be allowed to vote because they don't have a stake in the country's future. And I don't know off the top of my head, but my guess is, is that there's a hell of a lot more white upper middle class or upper class people who have decided to either A, not have children or B, have one child because it gets in the way of whatever, you know, white lotus type hotel they're going to go visit and children are just a hassle. And so it's always interesting to me that, you know, it's the white childless liberals when it's actually because the birth rate among white Americans has declined. And frankly, the death rate among white Americans has increased and the average lifespan has decreased that is helping on that demographic shift as well. But of course, if you're going to be a J.D. Vance or a Donald Trump or a Josh Hawley or a Ted Cruz, you know, it has to be the other people, right? That's sort of the keystone of the nationalist race driven thing is it's their fault. It's not our fault. It's their fault. They came here. They're taking our jobs. They make our streets unsafe. And none of this is new. This has been in a playbook for a couple of hundred years. Yeah, I just can't see it being effective in changing the actual numbers. Well, no, but that's the whole point, right? It's all performative. It's all bullshit. And they know it. I mean, I saw this story, you know, yesterday. Ted Cruz and his wife live in a very fancy part of Houston, Texas. Remember that his wife is also a senior executive at Goldman Sachs. They send their daughters to a very fancy private school. Somebody found, you know, I don't know the name of the school. And if I did, I wouldn't say it here. But the school will require masks of all staff, faculty, students, and guests. You know what? They're going to send their girls to school with masks on. They're vaccinated. Their friends are all vaccinated. Ted Cruz hates the people, hates the people he has to talk to. He has to pander to, to, you know, achieve political success in this country, but he does it anyway. Right. And they know that he hates them. Like he knows that, like you don't go to Princeton and then Harvard, right? Like that's the other thing too, Maya, we should really do like an Ivy league oligarchy like deal. I mean, all these people are coming out of the Ivy leagues pretending like they're the smartest and the best of America's elite institutions. And right now, like they're producing some not good people. Those are the colleges that I need to visit and kind of hold them to task and be like, what's happening here? Why the cynicism? <laughs> what in the world are you developing? Because this idea that the people that are coming out of these institutions are incredibly liberal and are going to try to turn the country into a, a socialist paradise is just not actually true. That's not how it's panning out. Right. Well, and that's the other part, too, right, is that 
these guys, and they will all do this. They all have to disguise who they are in their past because, you know, the white working class wants someone like them. Trump is the notable exception because they know instinctively that when he says something, he's saying it for their benefit. And he probably believes it when they hear Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or Tom Cotton or these guys speak. They know inherently that these people don't believe what they're saying. They're just trying to say it to get over on them. All right, let's see. Let's wrap it up with this from I'm RMAC 85 Mac. Did you see the quote Trump card they are peddling? We need an anti Trump card. Yes, we saw the Trump card. It utilizes a very sort of 1930s Nazi esque eagle, which is, you know, for anybody else, they would have done it on purpose. For the Trump people, they're just too stupid to know better. They just didn't know. Like they thought it was a pretty eagle. But, you know, I don't give the rest of the Republican or conservative movement credit. I just think for the Trump people, they really like the eagle. I will also say that in the original version of this Trump card, there was a typo. They misspelled the word official. I just finished reading Michael Wolf's latest book on Trump called Landslide. And apparently the thing that Trump hates more than anything is typos, ah. um, which I think is fascinating because literally the first press release his administration ever put out from the White House press office had typos in it. Everything that his administration has ever done has had poor grammar. And so of all the things that like this guy could worry about, I guess typos are it. So when that was pointed out to him, I'm sure he lost his mind. But, you know, this is not surprising. The Nazi eagle, not surprising. The typo is not surprising. An anti-Trump card, an anti-Trump card is your voter registration card. Get one and use it whenever and wherever you have an eligible election. Right on. I think that is an excellent answer. I can't top that. Or voter registration card. I'm like, as soon as you said it, I'm like, yeah, Reed, that's right. I was like, well, can't be a card carrying member of our democracy. That's I like that. that members. I like. All right. Yes. Card carrying members. All right. Well, listen, everybody, thanks again for all your questions. Maya, thanks for joining me today and helping us give a broader actual individual human American perspective on things as opposed to the egghead stuff that we provide week in and week out. Maya, where can folks find you online? You can find me at Maya on stage on all platforms, including Peloton. I say that because I got a few Peloton followers from the last time I did the podcast and I want to ride with y'all. I even have the hashtag Lincoln Project in my profile. And where can we find your schedule of events? Ah, yes. I will be putting those up on my website, which is also Maya on stage. And so you can see where I'm headed and find out what I should be or shouldn't be saying to these college students because it's going to be an interesting fall. All right. Well, if Maya's coming to your town or near your town, go see her. Hysterically funny, very insightful. And thank God she's on the team with us. All right, everybody. Thanks so much. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May 
which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.